0: Uh, we are growing here at Prodigal Church, and that is really, really exciting. Um, we had a second service at the beginning of September, and uh, it's just been so cool to see what God's doing, and new families and new people coming each and every week. But it also brings with it great challenges, and there's one specifically that we're kind of praying through right now. Prodigal, here at, here at Prodigal Church... Um, it's been a, a place where many people who have been burned in the past by churches, uh, religious settings, and it was it, it, you came out of a negative church experience. You're like, ah, I'm done with church, I'm done with religion, uh, and you found healing here at Prodigal. Um, we have a lot of those people, a lot of people who uh, have been burned in some capacity from the past. And they find themselves in our church, and we are happy that you're here. You'll find rest here. You'll find healing here. You'll find Jesus here. Um, but I feel just as strongly that if we stay there, if we stay uh, in the healing process, uh, we're missing out on God's best. Sometimes a consumer mindset is necessary in our lives, right? Like, I- I've been burned by the church in the past, and so this is the t- season of healing for me. And I'm just kind of rest, and this is just for me. Uh, Yes, that is good and right, but that's just a season. We're not supposed to stay as a consumer, but to move toward being a blessing to others. And for those of you who have been burned before, you were part of a church or organization. They they maybe used you. They used you for your volunteer hours. They used you for your money. Um, Maybe they didn't show that they really cared about you and your family. I'm not asking you to be a part of that kind of place again. I'm asking you to help us build something new build something different, a different kind of place, a community that, that really puts a pre, preeminent and prominent place on loving God and loving people. And we really do want you to help us during this season of growth. And our PC Kids Ministry is growing faster than our capacity to minister to those kids uh, efficiently and effectively. And so uh, we wanna encourage you guys uh, as you walked in, you got one of these uh, serve cards. And if you're not volunteering in any capacity of Prodigal Church, I just want to encourage you to consider this. Maybe prayerfully consider it. Some of you have fear that's just creeping up in your heart right now. Don't worry, we're going to address that fear today. Uh, but we encourage you, you to fill this out and you can drop it off the info kiosk um, or you can drop it off anonymously in the giving boxes on your way out, but we just want you to prayerfully consider how you can be a greater part of this early season of growth at Prodigal Church. Uh, We want more and more people to fall in love with Jesus. No Fear November. If you were to Google fear, you'll find over 900 million websites in .81 seconds. Three years ago, it was only 600 million. It's increased by 300 million in the last three years. Uh, Some of you have more fear today than you did last Monday because there was a midterm election on Tuesday. Uh, Fear is something that we grip with, we grapple with, we wrestle with, and it, it happens to all of us. One author wrote this about fear. All of us are born with this set of instinctive fears. The fear of falling, the fear of the dark, the fear of spiders, and the fear of falling on spiders in the dark. That's terrifying, that's terrifying. Ian Pavlov was a brilliant Russian scientist who won the Nobel Prize in 1904 with his his work with dogs and saliva. Okay, Pavlov knew why dogs salivated when they were presented with food. It's a biological response necessary for food digestion. But in the course of conducting the experiment, Pavlov noticed that his canine subjects began to salivate as soon as the feeder would enter the room, before any food was presented. Uh, Now, when Pavlov's scientists would come into the room, they would start by ringing a bell when food was presented. And they did this for some time, and then eventually they began to ring the bell without presenting food, and the dogs still salivated. The dogs had come to... Uh, associate this unrelated sensation the ringing of the bell and the delivery of food and now the idea is universally known today but in 1904 it was a massive uh, move forward it was a pretty big insight uh, and the importance of this insight is more about it's more than just how dogs salivate Okay, we know that Pavlov's discoveries show how our brains come to associate a, a neutral stimuli with something else that's completely unrelated and we do this all the time with our fears. Certain things trigger our fears, our anxieties, our worries. And we, as a culture, have more anxiety, more worry, more fear than any time and in any place in history. It affects us. Dr. Walter Cannon, a Harvard University researcher, um, he describes what happens to the human body when it becomes fearful and worrisome. He says, respiration deepens, the heart beats more rapidly, The arterial pressure rises. Blood is shifted from the stomach and intestines to the heart. Sugar is freed from the reserves of the liver. All these things are happening when you're worrying and you are fearful. Adrenaline is secreted. The spleen contracts and discharges its contents of concentrated corpuscles. You don't want to do that. I don't know what that is. It doesn't sound awesome. But we can find good news, even here. We can change our fear-based condition we can, as Pavlov's dogs also showed, unlearn our fears. You see, once a dog made the connection between the ringing of the bell and food, uh, Pavlov found that if he consistently rang the bell and presented no food to the dog, over time the dog would stop salivating on cue. Psychologists call this link of, of fading here, extinction. And when we often think of extinction, we think of when a species ceased to exist on our planet. But when applied to eliminating worry, fear, or anxiety based on our old inaccurate data, extinction holds out the promise that we can move on from fear. Would you like your fears and anxieties to become extinct? We can unlearn fear. And in unlearning fear, we find freedom. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 13. That's where we're going to kind of camp out this morning. We'll also find ourselves in the Psalms in a little bit. But... We just finished this six-week series on the book of Exodus, right? And and Moses, with with the help of the Lord, let my people go. They cross through the Red Sea, and uh, they go into the wilderness, and their call is to go to the Promised Land. They're not supposed to stay in the wilderness. They're supposed to go to the Promised Land. So they find themselves in uh, Kadesh Barnea, and they're trying to get into the Promised Land. So they send scouts out to check it out to see if it's safe. And this is we're going to pick up the, the story in verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and onto the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went and explored the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. We looked at this milk and honey. It's probably goat's milk, and it's probably date syrup. Uh, Doesn't quite have the same ring to it as milk and honey, uh, but it's flowing. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and large. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. Caleb says, The land is ripe for the taking. We can do this. God's brought us to the brink of the promised land. He's rescued us from Egypt. He's freed us from Pharaoh. The promised land is within our grasp. Let's take it. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites. A bad report about the land they had explored. Fear is contagious. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes when we looked, and we looked the same to them. Sadly, the Hebrews remained encamped miles from the promised land for 38 years. It wasn't until the next generation that God raised up people to take the promised land. Can you find yourself in this story, right? Can you imagine, for 38 years, they were paralyzed by fear, just one mile from the promised land. I love this story because it paints a picture of how fear works within us. We start out with a vision of the promised land, right? Our preferred picture of the future. And it's probably not flowing with goat's milk and date syrup. But it's our own picture of what we dream we could be. The right job, the right place, the right family, the right house, the the right community, right? Something we long to do, a dream or a calling we pursue. But then we begin to think about the risks and the dangers involved. Soon, all we see are obstacles, dangers, risks. We freeze in our tracks. Terror and despair take over. We wish we could turn back. We tell ourselves, I could never do that. I don't have what it takes. What if I fail? Others are more gifted than I am. Can you relate to the powerful push and pull of hope and dread as the same as the people of God? Have you ever found yourself terrified by giants that seemed insurmountable? Circumstances in the face of which you felt like you were going to give up, even before it started. I think of the warning etched into the side of our mirrors in our cars, right? objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. It's a helpful warning, right? The shape of the mirror makes things look smaller than they actually are, so if you don't take that into account when changing lanes, you could have a disaster, an accident. But when it comes to our assessment of risks, dangers, obstacles, often the opposite is true, right? These obstacles, these dangers, these trials are actually bigger We think they're bigger than they actually are. We think that they're closer than they really are. The obstacles seem like giants, and we're just little grasshoppers. So many of us live our entire lives paralyzed by fear just a mile from the promised land for what God has for us. In your own life, what obstacles seem like giants? Uh, Is it a struggling child? Is it a frustrating boss? Is it a difficulty in your relationship? Here's how it often plays out in our lives. When fear begins to control us, we uh, catastrophize our situation. Uh, We all become teenage girls, and we make it way bigger than it actually is. Uh, The phrase is we make a, a mountain out of a molehill. We do this all the time. All of our problems seem bigger than they actually are. In other words, we're seeing things worse. We're assuming they won't get better. And it's actually the opposite of faith. It's faith in reverse. Of all the possible outcomes, uh, without knowing all the facts, you're choosing to hold on the unwanted ones and discard the positive ones. It's reverse faith. And throughout this series, we're going to be talking about overcoming our fears with faith. To choose to believe the best, not the worst. You may have read that fear is false events appearing real, and I think that's a fair definition, and I think it's something that we all struggle with. But I want to propose another acronym that captures four important steps that we'll consider um, throughout this series. It's this, F, face your fears with faith, examine your assumptions in light of the facts. Attack your anxieties with action, release your cares to God. This will be an acronym that we go back to throughout this teaching series. We've all got fears. I was speaking with someone from our church this past week and he's going through a difficult season of life in his marriage. And he says, John, my greatest fear in the world is that I lose my family. And he said, what's the sermon on this Sunday? I said fear. We've all got this. Sometimes our fears take the form of procrastination, right? I think that those two are married. Procrastination and fear. It's fears hidden. You can hide fear in procrastination. And it may look something like this. I don't really wanna talk to this person or confront this person, so I'll put it off and I won't talk to them. Maybe they'll forget or the problem itself will just disappear. It won't. It'll get worse. Or I'm scared of how much this bill is going to be. So you get the bill and you don't even look at it. Right? You know it's there. You might have an idea of what it is. But we put it off till the very last moment. I think it's due somewhere around the 15th. Maybe I'll look at it at the 14th. If you're like me, procrastination leads to fear. It grips all of us to one degree or another. Everybody has fears. The early church, the Bible says in Acts 1, verse 8, that that you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. The the Greek word there for, for witnesses is martyria. It's where we get the word martyr, right? Someone who dies for a cause, for a belief, for a faith, a martyr. So Jesus tells us, before he ascends into heaven, you shall be my martyrs, my witnesses, into all the world. It's beautiful. And they were. Uh, when you were baptized in the early church, you were signing your own death sentence. There was great fear in proclaiming Jesus as Lord, because that means Caesar is not. In the early church, in the last 2,000 years, people have proclaimed Jesus is Lord by baptism. Dying to our old life, being raised to a new life in Christ. And next Sunday, we're going to be baptizing people. Uh, right now, there's seven people from our church that are going to be baptized, and we just can't wait. We're going to have like a, a cow's feeding trough of water right here. And people are going to unite themselves with 2,000 years of Christian history of saints of old, identifying with, with Jesus, dying and rising to new life. Maybe baptism is something you've procrastinated with. I'm not gonna get in front of people. Uh, I go to church every Sunday, God knows. I wanna encourage you. Is that fear? Is that fear? Is God stirring in your heart? No, I'm Christ for life. Jesus has done this for me. Jesus was baptized. We see the example throughout the scriptures. I'm gonna proclaim publicly that I belong to Jesus. It's the death certificate to the old life and the birth certificate to new life. in Let's be people who risk for faith, not procrastinate for fear. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's founder and CEO, noted that the best, best, best bit of advice he's ever received came from PayPal CEO, Peter Thiel. He said this, the biggest risk you can take is not taking any risk. The amygdala, the part of our brain that, that makes us defensive It's risk-averse, right? It it keeps us safe, but it also keeps us cozy when God might be calling us to step out of our comfort zone. Its job is to identify risks, dangers, obstacles and protect you from them. And that's a wonderful blessing, but it, it can save your life, but it can also keep you from living, right? We don't take any risks for fear of what could happen, for what if. At some point, we've got to face our giants. At some point, we've got to say, I'm not a grasshopper. Uh, I can take it. We can do this in Jesus' name. Uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is David. And I think this next year, we're going to be doing a sermon series kind of going through the life of David. But he, he's, an, he's an incredible man, an incredibly complex man, authored many of the Psalms that we have in our scriptures. And in Psalm 3, uh, I want to focus in on there. If you have problems, you can turn there, but it'll be on the screens. It says this. In the intro, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Uh, Just context. David's king. uh, His son does a mutiny against him. He loves his son Absalom. But his son rises up, builds an army, and overtakes the throne for a season. David's on the run. He literally, the, the world is caving in on him. He has people after him. Uh, He is running for his life. He says this, verse one, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. This is true. We have nothing to fear. Forrest said it two weeks ago and it's so beautiful. Love gives fear something to fear. Jesus tells us that perfect love casts out fear. As we are filled up with the love of God, fear falls by the wayside. The passage here in verse 3, it says this, You are a shield around me. You are a shield around me. It'll be on the screens. It's a very telling phrase. Why? Because there were, in the ancient world, there were two kinds of shields, two types of shields. And the first one is the little shield right here. You'll see it in this sculpture. The little shield, you put it on your arm, someone would swing, you could block it, you could also use it as a weapon, but this is not the kind of shield where you could say it's around me, right? In no sense of the phrase would that shield be around you. Now, you can move it around you, but in itself isn't around you. It's just too small. There's another kind of shield. It's this large one here. It's a couple different pieces. It's about the size of a door. And it wraps around the person. This is the shield that David's referring to. But what, what's that shield for? It's not for hand-to-hand combat, right? It's too slow. You don't take that kind of a shield into a one-on-one battle, no. You only use that shield when you're following your general to go besiege a fortress. It is a shield that doesn't avoid danger. It's a shield that goes into danger. You use it when you're approaching a wall or a fortress and enemies would throw arrows and balls of fire. You've seen this in the movies. When you're besieging a fortress, when you're capturing enemy territory, this is the kind of shield you would use. David says, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. But I remember you're my shield around me. The shield of God's protection here is for when you're going forward, not when you're retreating. It only works when I'm obeying. It only works when I'm following. It's when we're following our orders forward. We're following Jesus into the battlefield. The shield is of no use if you're running away. It actually will hurt you. If you're running away, that shield doesn't protect you. It's designed to protect you when you're running forward, not when you're retreating backwards in the midst of fear, are you moving forward with the shield of God around you? Or are you retreating, weighed down by something that's meant to protect you? I want to invite Noah the band to come up, and I want to close with this. C.S. Lewis is one of the great influences in my life. Uh, and his greatest influence, besides Jesus, was a Scottish man by the name of George MacDonald. George MacDonald wrote this Fairy tale called The Princess and the Goblin. And I, just, I want to just close with this. He tells the story of a princess who lives in a castle. Uh, and uh, around this castle is surrounded by subterranean caves and caverns where goblins live. And goblins bear a grudge against the sun people, the people who live during the day. And they took shelter into the caverns. And the servants in the castle know about the goblins, and they are to never let the princess leave the castle. She can never leave for fear of the the goblins. The princess has this friend named Curdy who discovers that the the weakness of these goblins is actually in their feet. But while he discovers this, the goblins capture him and keep him in the caverns, unbeknownst to the princess herself. And one day she has a particular bout of fear. So she begins to explore this castle that she's been in her whole life. And she walks up this staircase that she didn't know even existed. And she finds there her great-great-grandmother, Irene. She's the God figure in this story. And she's spinning a ball of thread. And uh, one night, the princess gets scared. She goes to the, to the grandmother. And the grandmother says, if ever you are scared, all you need to do is put this ring on. She puts a ring on, and it's a thread connected straight to her. So wherever you are, you take your ring off, you put it under your pillow, and then you follow the thread, and there you'll find me. And so not long later, later that week, she begins to hear a window open, a scratching. She begins to hear uh, creatures coming through a window, snarling, hissing. So she takes her ring off, she she puts it under her pillow, and she begins to follow it. And as she follows it into the hall, she immediately gets a sense of relief. Her fear begins to fade, because now she's out of her room. But to her surprise and dismay, the thread led her away from the staircase, the hidden staircase, to her great-great-grandmother's. To her shock, it actually led her out of the castle and into the night. Then it led her up to the mountains, to the caves and the caverns. She kept saying to herself, I know this will lead me to my grandma, I know this will lead me, I know, I know it will, I know it will. So she follows the thread into the heart of the caverns into the dark of night, until it finally stopped. She stood in the middle of this cavern, thinking that her grandmother abandoned her. So she thought, well, at least I could follow this back to the castle. And so she grabs the thread and begins to follow it in reverse. And as soon as she does, it vanishes. It disappears. Forward, it led into the caverns where the goblins are. And in reverse, it disappears. She collapsed on the stones and cried with fear. But while in that cavern, she finds her friend, Curtie, And she frees him from the goblins. As fairy tale as it is, it's a picture of us following Jesus. When we're scared, we must follow his threat, even when we're surrounded by darkness. He will always lead us to greater opportunities of love and freedom and goodness. Opportunities to help free people from the goblins of fear that assail us all. This protection, this shield, is as we move forward in faith, not backwards in fear. And so, in this place, I know many of us, we've got this one fear. And as we talk about risk, we begin to assess, is God really calling me to this? But what if this happens, and what if this happens, and what if this happens? If fear is assailing you, and if you were to risk it, if you were to take that risk, and follow that thread forward, and it led to greater love, greater goodness in our world, greater freedom. That fear's not from God. Jesus himself followed the thread, and it led him to Calvary's cross. Bearing the weight of the evil in the world, in transforming that grotesque cross, that weapon of execution, into something of hope and peace and love. He overcame sin and death because we can't. Jesus himself followed that threat. What does it mean for you to follow it forward, to live under the shield of God's protection? How is God calling you to take greater steps in faith for you, for your family, for your loved ones, for your community, for your church? How is God calling you to move forward in faith rather than backward in fear? Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that we declare with our own hearts and our lives that you're the king, you're the Lord. Father God, we thank you for the ways in which you have freed us from our fears. We thank you for the ways in which you've freed us from the chains that bind us God, I thank you for that. You call us out of our castles of comfort. That you call us out of our churches of comfort into a wild world to make a difference, to be a part of the kingdom of God, of bringing heaven to earth. Father God, I pray that we do that in a greater way, and I pray God that fear subsides for those who are struggling to sleep at night because of fear and anxiety. We pray in Jesus' name for your shield of protection to be upon them, God. For those who have been a mile from the promised land, seeing its fruit, but remaining still because of fear. We pray, God, that they cross that threshold in Jesus' name. I pray, God, even now that there's a resolve in our hearts, stirred by your spirit, for us to cross that to cross the border into Canaan. Father God, we thank you that your spirit leads us. And it might lead us into some places that we never thought it would lead us. But God, it's for the purpose of freeing those enslaved. It's for the purpose of greater love and goodness and righteousness and justice in our world. Help us to live that kind of way, God. Let, God, I pray against fear in our church, in our lives, in our minds. God, for some of us, that means we need to turn off the TV. We need to turn off the news. For some of us, that means we need to turn off our phones. God, I pray that our, our hope is found only in you. We love you, Jesus. You're the king of our heart. Draw us into more love away from fear. In Jesus' name, Would you stand as we declare that God is the king of our hearts?